This is Jamda On The Go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda on the Go for May 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome both of our co-editors-in-chief of Jamda, Dr. Paul Katz and Dr. Barbara Resnick. Today, we're also delighted to have the opportunity to chat with the authors of two of our recent JAMDA articles from the May issue, and we hope you'll continue to like this interactive style with the content experts who actually did the research. So Dr. Paul Katz is professor of geriatrics at Florida State University and also serves as medical director for Westminster Communities of Florida and Presbyterian Senior Living based in Pennsylvania. He's a past president of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, with a research focus on medical staff organization and its relationship to quality. Paul is a certified medical director with over 40 years clinical experience in nursing homes, assisted living, and outpatient geriatric care. Barb Resnick, PhD, CRNP, is a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and Doctoral Program, And Barb also co-directs the Biology and Behavior Across the Lifespan Research Center of Excellence. She holds the Sonia Zaporkin-Gershowitz Chair in Gerontology, does research in all settings of care, and also has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and senior housing communities. So today, your editors have chosen three articles that we'll be highlighting from the May issue, that we think will be of particular interest to our listeners. These topics include a study describing an innovative fracture care pathway, allowing residents to remain in the nursing home and avoiding transfer to the emergency department, a scoping review exploring whether physician practice characteristics influence the results of studies describing nurse practitioner and PA practice in nursing homes, and a review of exercise guidelines designed to maintain physical and functional capacity in long-term care settings. So it's an honor to start our discussion today with one of our authors, Amanda Mayo, MD, MHSC, FRCPC. That must be the fellow of the Royal College of something, right? What What is that, uh, Amanda? Yeah, the, Ro- the Royal College of uh, Physicians in Canada. Oh, okay, good. I, I learned a new one. Thank you. So uh, Dr. Mayo is a physiatrist at Sunnybrook HSC Amputee and Cardiovascular Rehabilitation Center in Toronto and is also an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Mayo also serves as associate director of the University of Toronto Center of Quality Improvement and Patient Safety, or CQIPS. Amanda is a co-author of the article we'll be discussing, Virtual Care in Long-Term Care Homes, Avoiding Emergency Department Visits. And then we also are thrilled to welcome Dr. Ben Smith. Ben is the associate dean of the School of Physician Assistant Practice in the College of Medicine at Florida State University. Ben earned a doctorate in medical science at the University of Lynchburg and a master's degree in physician assistant studies at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. 
He holds Bachelor of Science degrees from the Medical College of Georgia uh, as a physician assistant and the University of Georgia in biology. Dr. Smith is also a distinguished fellow of the American Academy of Physician Assistants. So welcome, Drs. Katz, Resnick, Weber, and Smith. Thanks so much. All right. Well, we're going to kick it off with Amanda. So can you uh, just start off by telling us a bit about yourself and your team in Toronto that, that worked on this paper? Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm a physiatrist or a rehab specialist here in Toronto. Um, this work was really on my other, my other role, which is a quality improvement specialist with CQIPS or the Center of Quality Improvement and Patient Safety at the University of Toronto. And our center sort of focuses on uh, healthcare teams, uh, QI and patient safety education. Uh, we do some consulting for capacity building and, and research such as this work in the field. Great. And can you tell a little bit about, you know, what the impetus was behind uh, this particular paper and the work that uh, accompanied it? Sure. So, I mean, timing is everything, but this work actually started pre-COVID pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, in Canada and, and Toronto specifically, we do have long sort of ED wait times or, you know, people come to the emergency department and wait long hours to see a specialist or perhaps we don't have a bed to admit them right away. Um, so this work started pre-pandemic um, and we sort of knew that, you know, a lot of long-term care residents were falling and injuring themselves. And the only way that they could see an orthopedic specialist in the system prior to this pathway uh, was to go to the ED and get a, a fracture clinic appointment. Uh, there was no sort of direct access for them. Um, so we wanted to avoid them having that poor experience of having to long, wait long periods in the ED, uh, experiencing pain and perhaps agitation and confusion being out of their environment. Um, and so that's really what started this pathway in particular. Um, and then the pandemic just accelerated the work. Um, and we, you know, our long-term care residents were having to be isolated if they had gone outside their home. And so if they went to the ED, you know, then they're going to be stuck in their room for like 10 to 14 days when this started way back in 2020. Um, and it also mobilized sort of teams working together that hadn't worked, to, worked together pre previously. Um, and we had orthopedic surgeons that were very keen to participate because their uh, surgeries had been shut down. So I think it was just sort of timing that uh -huh. catalyzed this work and allowed it to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that, that was a very nice synergy, it sounds like. Uh, so uh, any challenges in conducting the study? Yeah, I mean, we we started it in um, the summer of 2020, like launching the actual pathway. Um, and at that time, we still we couldn't go into the long term care homes. And so all of the training, education and planning was done virtually on Zoom. Um, and so we never met the care teams. And I think it's always sometimes better to do things in person or have discussions sort of in person. Um, so I think that was a challenge. Um, and then, you know, just getting agreement on sort of what fractures we were going to manage, but that did take time. Uh, it did take a lot of planning and making sure that everybody sort of trusted that this was appropriate. Um, and there was a lot of staff turnover. And so, you know, it had to be ongoing training and, and just maybe reorienting people with the pathway because, uh, there was a lot of loss of nursing staff and, and even sort of, uh, medical staff during, during the time that we were doing this pathway, um, we also had some issues where people heard about the pathway. And so we had other nursing homes that were using the pathway that weren't enrolled in it. Uh, and so <laughs> that became a challenge because, you know, they'd get the x-ray and the fracture, but they hadn't been set up with the hospital hub to manage it. Um, and so, you know, unintended sort of use. I mean, it was good because 
they were excited about it, but they just hadn't been enrolled. Uh, and so we had to, we had to sort of do some more uh, marketing or revising of our uh, website and sort of materials just to make sure that people knew uh, and long-term care homes, nursing homes knew that they were enrolled or not enrolled in the fracture pathway in Toronto. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I mean, obviously, there are some fractures that, you know, we can probably manage without even invoking an orthopedist, like some, you know, uncomplicated, uh, you know, proximal humeral fracture, things like that. But obviously, there are some that uh, require a lot higher level of care. Maybe for our listeners that uh, haven't read the study yet, uh, can you just tell us uh, basically what the what the protocol was and then what your take home messages were from it? Sure. Yeah. So we did manage fairly simple fractures. We had set inclusion criteria. Uh, they were upper or lower limb. We excluded hip fractures. Uh, we excluded any fractures that were open um, or any fracture dislocations. Uh, these could not be managed sort of safely in the nursing home. Uh, and our pathway, they got rapid x-rays on site. So we have a mobile imaging provider that comes into the nursing home, does an x-ray, uploads it to sort of our provincial uh, database where orthopedic surgeons can review the films electronically. And then we got an orthopedic consult within sort of 48 to 72 hours. Uh, a lot of the consults, uh, when it was initially formed, were virtual because uh, of the pandemic. But we did have some patients that were scheduled to see the surgeons in fracture clinic. And most of the fractures, so we're thinking about like finger fractures, uh, foot fractures, like a fifth MTP fractures, were just managed with sort of splints and braces and air cast boots that we equipped the nursing home staff with. Um, and that's a pathway in a nutshell um, with the rapid access to imaging and sort of orthopedic review, uh, we're able to manage the fractures within the nursing home or avoiding the ED and getting patients sort of scheduled fracture clinic uh, visits uh, at the hospital hub. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think uh, all of our listeners, you know, that would resonate, you know, the ability to not subject our residents to that whole, you know, uh, paramedics and and uh, sitting in the ED and uh, whether there's a pandemic going on or not. A lot of times that's just not a kindness. So uh, would you think this kind of work is sustainable? And what would you suggest as a sort of a next step here? Yeah, we're actually expanding the pathway currently. So it had it is sustainable, but we've had to revise it a bit. I think what an enabler was that our, our provincial uh, publicly funded healthcare system really funded virtual care quite uh, well uh, during the pandemic. And now they've changed some of the fee codes. So uh, some of our fracture clinics are, are just doing in-person care, uh, but we've arranged it now that they get a scheduled fracture clinic visit versus having to go to the ED, which was pre-model. Um, and I think we just need to ensure that all the clinical team members are trained and sort of in agreement. And like I said, make sure that there's not homes or, or teams using the pathway when they haven't been trained or sort of enrolled. Uh, but we are expanding. We're hoping to get up to uh, 55 to 60 homes within sort of the rest of 2023. That's fantastic. Paul, Barb, any uh, questions or comments for Amanda? Yeah, Amanda, this is Paul. Uh, thank you. It's a, it was a great study. I, I really uh, think it as the uh, you know can change practice as you were just mentioning. the uh, The average time to the ortho consult you you said up to forty eight hours. Was it was the average forty eight hours or was it sooner? Um, it was typically 48 to 72 hours. We only could provide the consults uh, Monday to Friday, uh, but we did have a triage system and they're usually was seen or reviewed within the next day if possible. Of course, if it was a, a Friday fracture, then it would have been the Monday um, for the, the clinic appointment. And was the triage the primary care provider in the facility or someone else? 
No, we actually had uh, nurse navigators and we still have nurse navigators set up with the fracture clinic. Uh, and so they'll review the fracture and then uh, assign it to an appropriate orthopedic surgeon, say an upper extremity versus a lower extremity surgeon. Uh, and they'll sort of schedule them into the appropriate fracture clinic slot. Which leads me to my final question of cost. And um, to piggyback on Carl's, uh, you know, sustainability. Yeah, so I think the one thing that we've changed um, and with our funding model, like I said, virtual care was sort of compensated the same as in-person care. So as far as like physicians and getting them engaged and sort of on board, we did have to switch. Uh, and a lot of ours are now done in-person uh, fracture clinics or maybe a phone or email consult. Um, those are there's just sort of different compensation models. And I think we have to keep an eye on that to people keep people engaged and sort of make it work out for everyone. Um, the other thing is, yes, we do get Ministry of Health funding for the nurse navigator. Um, and but most of the other services are sort of funded as they would prior to this pathway, as far as, you know, the immobilization equipment. Um, and we do save costs, actually, by the reduced transportation costs for the residents sort of going back and forth to the hospital. Uh, but I think an economic model would be a next step uh, for this pathway. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, and I, you know, as I'm thinking about it, uh, obviously, uh, in a fee-for-service world, uh, there, there could be some barriers, but uh, in sort of a value-based purchasing or, uh, you know, more evolved models, um, avoiding that whole emergency room transfer, that clearly saves a lot of costs. And uh, uh, it does seem like it, it could be very well scalable and uh, also a kindness to, to our patients. So thanks a lot for doing the work. Uh, some so that's been some great discussion and perspective. Amanda, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today on Jammed On The Go. Thanks for having me. All righty. So we're going to move to our second paper for discussion, Physician Practice Characteristics Influencing Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant Care in Nursing Homes, a scoping review. Dr. Ben Smith is a co-author of this study. So Ben, can you tell us a little bit about your new role at the Florida State University College of Medicine? Thank you, Carl. Really appreciate this opportunity. I currently serve as the program director for the PA program at FSU. Uh, and of course, that brings many great, wonderful responsibilities. And uh, just so grateful for the opportunity to talk about PA profession and the college with which we work. Well, that's great. Uh, and uh, thank you for the work you're doing in that area. Uh, and uh, tell me a little bit about the impetus for exploring this issue. I, I think, you know, most of our listeners are very much uh, attuned to, you know, collaborative care uh, with uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and so on uh, in nursing homes. But uh, just how did you uh, come up with this and uh, how did the whole uh, study process go? Yeah, you, you make a wonderful point that uh, we're, we're very familiar with and are grateful for the opportunity to, to work together as a team to provide the highest quality care in, in nursing homes and other settings as well. Uh, you know, we recognize the tremendous workforce challenges that exist in, in multiple uh, areas of medicine, in, including in, in long-term care as well. And, and we think about this in a way to maximize that each, each team member, uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, PAs, and, and others who contribute to the care of patients. It's interesting that what has often been a question that has come uh, over the years, really, is how to most optimally utilize each, each member of that team uh, to, to provide the best care uh, to those whom we serve. 
And so that was really the impetus of our question. Um, you know, we, we know there are studies that have been published in this regard, and, and we're grateful for those. But the question really came to mind uh, about physician practice characteristics, uh, as the title is, and how they affect uh, care and the team, and then uh, subsequently outcomes uh, as well. And so with this in mind, looking at the workforce situations of which we're familiar, but also uh, considering, you know, the, the most optimal team, you know, how do we describe best practices in uh, team delivery of care uh, that led to the review that was accomplished. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so what were your take home messages? I, I mean, what what are the best practices that you determined if you if any? And uh, what would you recommend for our listeners? Well, the, the the results essentially gave us an answer that we thought that we might find. And that's that many of the studies which were reviewed, uh, you know, did not take into account, you know, the physician practice characteristics uh, when they were considering outcomes and, and, and drawing their conclusions and looking at their results. You know, things such as, um, you know, the number of physicians in that practice or that, uh, you know, have responsibility in that nursing home or long-term care facility. Um, you know, and the caseload that, that physicians carry in this as well. And, and what that collaborative relationship really looks like with an NP or, or PA. Is it, uh, you know, collaborative, or is it more of a substitution uh, type opportunity that exists? So, uh, the studies that we found um, that met the inclusion criteria uh, really did not describe that, and and so that's really the opportunity, the take home message uh, that we have uh, from this review. All right, uh, how do you think your findings might change clinical practice, if at all? Uh, you know, what is it that we can? Uh, you know, how can we make things better in our own practices? I, I think it presents an opportunity, again, for us to really define what those best practices are. We're, we're grateful for the the, the the literature that does exist, but this is an opportunity to consider another variable in that best practices and and defining what that, what that might look like. Um, so I think that's an opportunity for both researchers and those who write about this, but also you know, certainly in a, in a clinical practice setting to, to consider that and, and, and think about all those variables that, that ultimately make a difference in delivering the highest quality patient care. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. And, I, you know, there are so many models out there. And I, I like one of the facilities where I'm medical director uh, is now contracting with a group that will have a nurse practitioner on site. So, you know, if I'm not able to be in the building and there's a change of condition, that nurse practitioner would would see the resident. And, um, you know, there are some doctors who will say, you know, just go ahead and write orders and, and do what you want. There are other doctors who are going to say, well, I want you to at least call and run it by me. And um, it's so heterogeneous. So I think, uh, you know, that's something you've seen one physician practice. You've seen one physician practice, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a great example, a very realistic example of, of this. And, uh, you know, really provides that opportunity to, to study this more. So uh, what would you suggest as a next step in research in this arena, if any? I think as we as we move forward in, in this arena with of research, I think we consider this variable, uh, including uh, in our descriptions, you know, what are those physician characteristics uh, that, that come to play when when physicians work perhaps with or without MPs and PAs uh, in their practice, and it's just simply adding or describing that, and then let's reflect back upon what we learned uh, from that inclusion. 
Right. Because what we're all after is giving the best care we can to our residents, right? So and that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Paul Barb, any any comments or questions? Well, Carl, um, is the listeners may or may not know I was part of this research team, so I can't be totally objective. But I, I want to emphasize the point, uh, obviously, that uh, that Ben is making. But the, the point that the purpose of this review was not to opine on nurse practitioner or PA practice in nursing homes or the impact of this practice on quality. I think we've already uh, mentioned how important it is. Uh, but I firmly believe that teams composed of physicians, MPs, and PAs deliver high quality care to their residents, especially when each professional recognizes the other scope of practice, is respectful of complementary skill sets, and communicates effectively, basically what you and Ben were talking about. And I you know, wholeheartedly agree with Ben, I think, on the research side, including the uh, physician characteristics, practice characteristics as a mediating variable to the quality outcomes will give us significant insight into these questions of uh, how the team can be most effective. Yeah, along with that, I would throw in uh, the opportunity in the future to look at things like the models of how that practice is developed. Who hires the NP or PA? Is it the physician practice? Is it the facility? and the different ways that that can happen and what some of the issues, benefits are. We could go on and on about that. Um, and then also, I think, a deeper dive into the black box of who is doing what and how each provider can facilitate the work of the other. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one thing, Barb, you just made me think of is that I've seen groups that hire brand new nurse practitioner graduates and cut them loose in this very complex post mm -hmm. environment. And sometimes that does not go well. I'll just say that. And um, so I think that's another variable that has to be considered. Uh, on the other hand, there are wonderful, you know, uh, nurse practitioners and PAs with decades of experience to whom I would totally entrust my own family members. And so that there, again, there's a, a wide variability. Um, and that's what I mean in some ways by that black box, but you're also bringing experience. So it, it's, uh, it, it, you can't always compare by the person's degree as much as their experience, but it's just really great work and more and more we need to look at it and look at what these teams are doing and how we can make an impact. Yeah, and I just wanna add my support to the idea that in the post-acute and long-term care space and in hospice and palliative care, I think we do an exceptionally good job of collaborative interprofessional team-based care. Uh, this may be a bit outside the parameters of your article there, but um, I just want to say, you know, I'm a, a delegate to the AMA's House of Delegates, and I've generally been really impressed with how progressive uh, their policies are. But there's this one notable exception, and that's the resistance to what they like to call scope creep. And I don't think there's any question that physicians have a lot more educational requirements than advanced practice practitioners. But I also believe that we have huge clinician workforce issues that are not going to be solved by physicians alone. I also believe that any clinician can be dangerous if they're not willing to ask for help when they need it, or you know if they don't know their own knowledge deficits, right? So 
we place our patients at the highest risk when we fail to identify our own limitations. So Paul, Ben, Barb, any comments on that before we move on? This has been an excellent discussion, and, and I think it really uh, highlights the importance of, of this work. I, I, there's a really uh, important topic occurring in, in the MP and PA world, and which translate into practice, and that's the idea of onboarding and, and kind of creating that optimal team for what's needed for the patient or that practice at, at that given time, whether they're new or more experienced, uh, you know, clinician. So I, I think onboarding and, and maximizing training and, and as Paul, I think, mentioned communication, that, that's the real opportunity that we have here. You know, you know, it had the, the, this notion of looking at practice characteristics uh, goes beyond looking at uh, APPs. Uh, when we're, we're examining uh, so-called SNFs, for example, well, physicians and nurse practitioners, there's, we need to consider um, their, what else they're doing, um, how many, what their volume of patients is, et cetera, to get a better idea of, um, of their, their impact and the underpinnings of, the, of their effect on quality. Yep, that's another great discussion. And I think, you know, I look forward to more work coming out of this arena to sort of uh, pin down some of those uh, uh, aspects of quality, uh, collaboration and experience that all uh, sort of dovetail together. So, uh, Ben, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for your great work. Keep it up. Thank you. All right. So, Paul and Barb, we're going to conclude with one additional article for which we're hoping you can provide a synopsis. This article is by Mylene Aubertin Lehudre and her colleagues from the University of Quebec in Montreal. And this is entitled Exercise Guidelines to Counteract Physical Deconditioning in Long-Term Care. Obviously a topic that's uh, uh, important to all of us. Uh, so uh, Paul, uh, what's the rationale here? So uh, thank you, Carl. The rationale for this report uh, relates to the well-known age-related decrease in muscle function and changes in body composition which we're all familiar with, which in turn, of course, increases the, the risk of functional capacity and loss of autonomy. I know, uh, Amanda, you deal with this all the time in your role as a physiatrist. Um, anyway, these declines are obviously more pronounced in older adults living in long-term care facilities uh, than those living in the communities. The authors, for example, note that the prevalence of sarcopenia in long-term care facilities is 41% versus 10% in the community. Likewise, obesity prevalence of 30% in long-term care versus 17% in the community. The authors go on to um, comment that since exercise is recognized uh, to help counteract many of these age-related declines, they wanted to review extant exercise guidelines and recommendations that aim to maintain physical and functional capacities in the context of long-term care. Well, needless to say, the recommendations were varied uh, and I'm going to list uh, a number of them. What we don't have is like a gold standard, but I think for the listener is to refer back to this article, go back to the uh, primary studies uh, if they're interested to, to get a sense of what may work in their context. But some of the recommendations included completing at least two sessions of a minimum of 35 minutes each per week, combining different types of exercise, such as balance, flexibility, resistance, aerobics, functional exercise into each session. Uh, other reviews talked about limiting sedentary time by incorporating brief activities like walking or sit-to-stand uh, challenges or an active game, for example, during a TV commercial break to break up the day, uh, adapting and personalizing physical activity sessions to the resident's fitness level, 
to ensure safety and encouraging fun and enjoyment. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, patient-centeredness. You can't get any more patient-centered than that. Mm. Uh, always consider the preferences of the residents, uh, what they like in terms of the schedule, the type of modality, whether they, they like to exercise in a group, individually, in person, remote, et cetera. Uh, so many of the recommendations talked about how to educate and motivate residents and family members and the team, importantly, about the health benefits of physical activities, and importantly, addressing the fears of the residents. Um, ultimately, uh, to be successful, you have to involve uh, everyone on the team, uh, and everyone has to be convinced in some fashion to integrate physical activity as a long-term care habit. Um, so, you know, I think it it just reminds us how important it is. Uh, we don't, as I mentioned, have a gold standard, but there are many ways to uh, to try to incorporate more physical activity uh, into the day-to-day routines of our long-term care residents. Yeah, and I, I see, you know, 35 minutes twice a week. I mean, certainly um, with our activities staff or maybe with, you know, restorative nursing assistants or something, it doesn't seem like that would be a high bar at least in sort of a group setting, you know, uh, if you can get people who are able to do similar types of activities with some, maybe a single person sort of supervising and cheerleading them, uh, that does not seem like a particularly high bar. Um, Barb, uh, any comments on this? Yeah, so for me, as someone who spent my entire career motivating older adults to engage in physical activity, that's often the biggest problem. And I I love this work because I think the real take home is, you know, start start low, go slow, but anything is better than nothing. Smoking like a true geriatrician. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is the motivation piece and what people can and are willing to do, but it's starting where they can and moving on. Yeah. Well, I mean, deconditioning and the sort of sedentary lifestyle that is characteristic of a lot of our long-term care residents really define and 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 point up the need for structured exercise programs. I think it can be so important in improving physical, functional, and emotional status of our residents and maybe cognitive too, right? So the challenge, of course, is to find the right personnel armed with the necessary resources to deliver the needed interventions. And really, we'd love to hear about success stories from our listeners, especially, you know, sort of creative or outside the box interventions that are feasible, scalable, and don't require tremendous amounts of resources. I think these could be turned into a great article, either a research in JAMDA or a letter to the editor or an article in Caring for the Ages, because I think many of our listeners would so welcome uh, creative ideas for that. Uh, so any last comments from either of our co-editors? Yeah, Carl, I just wanted to add to the discussion that, um, as we know, the, one of the challenges, not only the the, the staff constraints um, and continuity, but it's the, it's a philosophical approach that needs to change because mm. everyone is so um, task focused in long term care. We often, you know, let's uh, put Mrs. Smith into the uh, Ben, no relation to Ben, obviously, but Mrs. Smith into the wheelchair to take her to the dining room uh, because it's quicker, not because it's good for Mrs. Smith. So we do have to make that that philosophical shift as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point is that sometimes we create dependence just because out of convenience uh, instead of uh, uh, 
taking the extra time to let people do what they can on their own. So that's a that's a great theme to to remind everyone of. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this Jam on the Go podcast. Thanks again to our guest presenters for a great discussion. And thanks, as always, to our editors in chief and our staff from Elsevier whose efforts continue to generate one jam to volume after another. Please take a look at our May 2023 issue. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next month, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jamda On The Go. If you are a physician, and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.